This is your Wednesday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Glad to have you all back with me again for another day. Jam-packed show. It's been a busy stretch here. Um, A lot of good guests, a lot of good times. I will be out at the fair again today. Probably my last trip out there, but we'll see. Scheduled to talk to Lindsay Whalen. You might have heard of her. Gophers women's basketball coach. Minnesota basketball legend going into the National Basketball Hall of Fame here in a little over a week. Um, We'll talk to her on the Star Tribune stage around 3 p.m. today. Um, I will play a portion of that on the podcast as well probably next week. So hope to see you out there for that or at least listening um, in a little while. Um, Coming up on the show today... I'm speaking with Dan Levitt, local baseball historian, uh, co-author of a new book called Intentional Bach, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. Um, Fascinating subject matter, really relevant to the times we're in in baseball, and just a really really thorough reckoning of baseball's history and kind of you know where how we got to this point and what might be ahead for the sport as well so really enjoyed that conversation with Dan Levitt and I hope you do as well got to get to the twins too suddenly surging twins these five wins in a row after those six losses in a row 67 and 61 now still a game and a half behind Cleveland um, you know, but uh, but but hanging right there, the big hit, Nick Gordon's grand slam. So we'll talk a little bit more about the Twins here in just a few minutes. But first, what did I miss? It was cut down day in the NFL on Tuesday. NFL teams had to get their rosters down to 53 players after you know spending the preseason with you know a bunch more than that, 85, 90 at times as they're kind of sorting out, you know, the bottom part of their roster. And with the Vikings, you know, I don't know if there was a ton of intrigue, especially with the top players. Like I've said before, their best players are as good as anybody else's best players. It's those depth pieces that worry me that they really needed to look at and that didn't necessarily shine during an 0-3 preseason. Um, That's my biggest takeaway from Tuesday was it felt like the first time that we got a clear signal of the regime change um, from Rick Spielman and Mike Zimmer to Quese Dofo Mensa and Kevin O'Connell. Now, obviously, there's been subtle moves along the way, but you know this this roster largely kept intact, including Kirk Cousins, some of the other veterans, bringing in new systems. But we haven't seen those new systems on the field yet, um, at least in a meaningful way. So we don't really know how that plays out. But the cutdowns were interesting in that it was a reminder that the new regime is not beholden to any of the players that were here before. I thought Ben Gessling did a really nice job writing about that in uh, in Wednesday's paper and on StarTribune.com. The headline, Vikings roster cuts expose shortcomings of former general manager Rick Spielman's final draft. Sounds like a blog post I could have written, uh, but ben did, a bit, ben did a great job kind of going into detail um, and analyzing things, and Vikings cut six of the 11 players that Spielman took in his last draft as Vikings GM in 2021. That was only a year ago, including three of their four third-round picks from a year ago. Um, Kellen Mond, of course, the quarterback they took last year, cut. Now, he could get added to the practice squad today. 
Um, Chaz Surratt, linebacker, Wyatt Davis, the guard, those guys could be eligible as well. But it's it's significant when more than half of the draft picks from just a year ago, guys who have, you know, guys who have contracts, guys who have, you know, long-term rookie deals who are, you know, essentially dead money, um, who are counting against your cap, but who, you know, should be should be projects that you want to rely on down the road, especially those three third round picks, guys who are top 100 picks, you know, guys who are second day picks. Those are guys who, you know, obviously don't always work out, but that's where you need to accumulate the sort of quality depth that can keep you from melting down in the season, can, can help you withstand injuries, can help you eventually replace veterans with capable young players. And I don't think the message from Ben's story was that the Spielman era was a disaster because he certainly points out the draft successes that they had along the way. Brian O'Neill, Justin Jefferson, some of the earlier picks like Eric Kendricks and Daniil Hunter. Um, more than that, it was kind of it was just looking at a lot of misses in recent drafts, and now this new regime coming in, taking a fresh look at the players they have to work with, taking a fresh look at kind of how things were done, and saying, you know what. Um, I, I know these guys are dead money right now, maybe not a ton of dead money, um, but we just we, we need to go in a different direction. These guys aren't getting it done on the field in camp right now, and they're not among our best 53 players. And I don't think that's a decision that necessarily would have gotten made um, by, by Spielman and Zimmer, especially since they you know since Spielman was the one who selected those players. If they were still here, I think a lot of those 2021 picks might get a little bit more of a of a look, and you know it extended to. You know, players beyond that as well. Armand Watts, kind of a surprise cut. Um, he was a draft pick in 2019. Looked like he might be a starter this year. That's how it trended throughout the preseason. But instead, uh, Vikings decide to uh, to cut Armand Watts, make a big trade right in the middle of uh, right in the middle of all this. Um, you know, right in the middle of all the cuts. Um, you know, in addition to releasing Kellen Mond, releasing veteran quarterback Sean Mannion, no surprise there. Um, they they cut Watts and made a trade with. Uh, with the with the Houston Texans for Ross Blacklock, uh, 2020 second round pick, a three four scheme guy, rotational defender. Um, he you know he'll be he'll be a defensive lineman, maybe just better system fit, better you know guy that they like, they know about, got some talent there. So that doesn't feel like a move to me that they would have made under the old regime as well. So interesting there. They also traded Jesse Davis to the Steelers for a conditional 2025 seventh round pick. Jesse Davis brought in in the offseason to maybe be the starting guard or at least compete for that spot. But Ed Ingram's progress giving them enough of a look there. that They think they're solid enough there. But interesting to trade away depth at that position. They must feel good enough about the rest of their depth. But I, I can't imagine, again, a Vikings regime in the past trading a capable veteran offensive lineman on cutdown day. So just the, the bigger picture takeaway for me was I liked what Ben wrote, and I, I feel like this is one of the first signals of kind of the new the new look, the new way of doing things with the Vikings, the, the new way that Kwesi Adolfo Mensa and Kevin O'Connell are evaluating this roster, that they're not beholden to any of the players that were picked before that they're going to look at the best 53 keep those 53 and try to keep going from there let's get to the twins nick gordon grand slam six rbis in that win over boston final score 10-5 in that game impressive to me in particular not just the offense in that game but the bullpen and the way the twins were able to 
immediately come back from a disappointing um, top of the top of the fourth inning, top of the fifth inning. Excuse me. You know, Twins had taken a three nothing lead after two. Boston chipped away, got one in the fourth, and they got three in the fifth. Suddenly, Boston's up four three. Chris Archer, who's you know been pretty limited this year, you know got in trouble in that fifth inning. Got a, got got a little deeper into the game. That qualifies as deeper into the game when he's pitching the fifth, and that that hurt them. But right away after they gave up those three runs in the top of the fifth, they get the four back in the bottom of the fifth on that massive Nick Gordon grand slam. And Gordon also had um, two other RBIs, had a double uh, that drove in some runs earlier in the game. So, you know, kind of keeping it keeping it moving five in a row, like I said. And like I said, the bullpen too impressive in that game because they came in, got out of some jams, got out of, uh, you know, Archer gave up, was was charged for four runs in four and a third innings. Uh, but the rest of the pitchers went four and two-thirds, just gave up one run the rest of the way. Even Emilio Pagan pitched a relatively clean ninth inning in a kind of a low-leverage five-run lead situation, but they didn't have to use um, Jean Duran nor uh, Jorge Lopez in this game, so that was a boon as well. So, like I said, Twins staying staying pace with uh, with Cleveland, staying in the you know staying in that mix right now. You know, feeling like feeling like this is kind of turning into a two team race, not a three team race in the AL Central for a little while. That's always subject to change. These things change from from week to week, but uh, you know the White Sox keep keep stumbling. They're three games under 500 now, six games back of Cleveland, four and a half behind the Twins now. So those teams putting a little distance between themselves and the White Sox, and the Twins play the White Sox here in just a couple days. So that might be Chicago's you know chance to try to get back into this, or the Twins' chance to really bury them deeper in those standings. So, you know, big picture takeaway is we, we've tried a few different times this year to say this is the end of the Twins, and each time they come back. So it really is coming down now to September September 1st is tomorrow. This is going to be a race that probably goes down to the final week. There's enough games against Cleveland, enough games against Chicago, enough of those testers, enough of those enough of that variance with all these teams that's probably going to probably going to wind up that way. And you know, I don't know what's going to happen. This team has been unpredictable all year, but I think the one thing you can say about this team is that it's been resilient and that they probably deserve to be watched down the stretch just because of how much they have accomplished at this point. MGM Wine and Spirits is the choice for savings, service, and a great selection of spirits, premixed cocktails, wines, and of course, ice-cold beers and hard seltzers. With over 30 locations throughout the Twin Cities and beyond, there's an MGM near you. Head to MGMWineAndSpirits.com to find a convenient location in your area. Get social. Follow MGM on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and trends. Make great moments with MGM Wine and Spirits, your locally owned and operated choice for over 50 years. Save time, save money. Shop MGM. I welcome back. Glad to be joined today on Daily Delivery by Dan Levitt, um, author, co-author of a new book, Intentional Bach, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. Um, Dan, you are local to the Twin Cities, correct? That's right. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for hopping on. And um, I'm li- really looking forward to talking about this book because I think it's an interesting subject, kind of, you know, kind of the, some of the difference between you know, baseball is a game that's kind of built for a lot of its history on, you know, bending of the rules is kind of gray area of what constitutes cheating, what constitutes gamesmanship is a word that people like to 
like to use when they're not comfortable with the word cheating or when it doesn't quite cross a line. But from your perspective, you've written a number of books before. Um, you're, you're with the Society of, uh, Society of Baseball Research. What, what got you interested in this particular subject? Well, a couple of things. One is with all the stuff that's been going on over the last several years, whether it's steroids or sign stealing or sticky stuff on the baseball, it's been a funny conversation that every conversation has been very siloed. Like this is the worst thing, or we shouldn't care about this. And Mark, my co-author and I are, are baseball historians. And we just thought there was a lot of context to put in this. You know, how has cheating been viewed throughout baseball history? Why is some cheating viewed differently than others? What's the relationship? And what we talk about is to innovation to cheating, because that, that there's really, you know, every time there's a new innovation, somebody figures out a way to have it apply uh, to, to, to gaining an advantage. So, so that, that, that was sort of point one. The, the other thing is that, our, you know, we, we've each written several books individually, but also together. And our books we've written together have always been on sort of how teams are built. And this is a little way and how teams are very competitive people try and win. And this is really sort of an extension of that in that you have these very competitive teams, front offices, very competitive players, and how are they going up to the line and then sometimes over it? Well, I'm obviously you, you mentioned the sign stealing being a big thing that was going on for, you know, for, throughout baseball history, but then you, you bring a technological component to it. You, you talk about what the Astros were caught doing, what the Red Sox were caught doing, what I'm, any number of teams were probably doing to a certain degree as, as well to, to you, what, what what was that 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 scandal as it broke, and then we eventually learned, you know, the Astros used it as to help them win a World Series. Where did that one fall on the, on the spectrum for you? Well, it's it's, it's really interesting because when you start looking at it historically, first of all, when you're talking about innovation, modern prism binoculars were first introduced in 1894, and by 1899, the Phillies were out in center field using them to steal signs. But what happened is then throughout the 20th century, there was a number of, I mean, if you go back, I mean, we talk about a bunch of them in the book and that chapter could have been a hundred pages long by itself. Yeah. Just the number of sign stealing scandals. But what's fascinating is it was never, there was never a rule against it. And we okay. talk about sort of this consensual ethic, which is kind of like an unwritten rule, but that has all sorts of other connotations. So that if you were caught doing it, people would like say bad things about you, but nobody was ever suspended for it. There was never a rule people talked about. At the, at, at the level, at, at the league levels of, of putting you in trouble. Um, you know, what, what happened, I think, with, with, with the Astros is that, well, partially, but the other thing we talked about is that Bud Seeley was sort of nostalgic about sign stealing. When people complained about it in, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, Seeley was like, gee, I remember going to Milwaukee Braves games when I was a kid and people would complain about sign stealing. And so it really fell on Rob Manfred to really sort of draw the line on the sand. And he, he, he drew that line on the sand, it, it, you know, he, he drew that line basically in September 2017. So after the Red Sox had the issues with the Apple Watch, where yeah. they were electronically getting signals through that, at that point, Manfred came out, Commissioner Rob Manfred, with, with a letter that said, if you're caught sign stealing, I'm going to the GM and the manager is who, who I'm going to hold, hold accountable. So to a certain degree, after that point, one can say, Every that the teams were on notice before that, you know, it, it was kind of a little more nebulous. It was still illegal to do it electronically, but you know, it was kind of like no one had ever really been penalized up until the Red Sox. So, it, it as as we talk about, there's this cost benefit analysis to cheating, and you know, a lot of ways, you know, if you, if you can get away with it, maybe you give it a try. 
was it the technological component you think that bothered people enough in in this case or just you know the fact that you're not just doing it with something that's that's always been done you know i think part of it was just sort of the intricacy of it you know but just some guy in the outfield with binoculars waving a, a you know a red towel for a curveball and a green towel for a fastball it just seems a little bit more innocuous, but you know, you had, you had multiple people, you had front office people, you had this whole thing where they were looking at the video monitor and then buzzing the clubhouse and then giving the signal. So I I think part of it was sort of this whole, you know, the intricacy, the number of people involved really had something. And then of course, I think there's the fact that they won, right? I mean, if the Astros had been eliminated in the, you know, divisional round for some reason, and then it came out it'd be a little bit more, well, gee, you know, that sort of happens. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the fact that they won probably did play into uh, into that as well. Now, you know, the Astros are a good example of you know a, a modern front office that's run you know uh, like I don't know like any kind of big business or any kind of economic you know kind of you know using a lot of you know economic principles things like that that you know maybe push the margins in in the real world too. As you kind of think about how who is running teams right now, does this does this perpetuate the idea of kind of pushing the envelope with some of these things? Well, I mean, we, we go back all the way to the beginning of, of baseball history that teams have always been trying to do this. I mean, right. Branch Rickey, you know, famous GM of the Cardinals. Um, he, he was the inventor of the farm system, you know, before that minor league teams were independent. He sort of brought the teams under the umbrella. Well, 10 years later, he had 74 players released and made free agents because he was illegally keeping these players sort of what they call covered up or hidden. So they couldn't advance. So he controlled more players than he was technically allowed to under the rules. So, yeah, I think that the innovate, the most innovative folks, you know, that's sometimes they go up to the line and sometimes they go over. I mean, you go back to the 1850s when baseball was first being played around New York city and you had teams like the unions playing the Excelsiors, you had teams, you know, grabbing players off of other teams um, you know, unfairly, you know, you had, you know, you had owners, everyone was supposed to be an amateur and you had people playing players as professionals. So, yeah, I mean, I think, yes, the teams that want to win are looking for an advantage and, you know, you got to patrol that line. Why do you think some of these things bother, whether it bother either teams who aren't doing it more than others or bother the, the public more than others. Cause I think you know, there's been scandals kind of come and go. Some of them are sticky. I mean, literally sticky in the case of the, the baseball um, and the pitchers getting, you know, additional grip on that. But, you know, some of them, I feel like some of them are easier to conceptualize and understand as cheating, but I also feel like there's, it doesn't always make sense to me. It doesn't always seem to be a parallel between what's going on and how people react to it. Do you have any insight into that? Well, I think there's this sense that people want purity of athletic competition. And they're looking for the greatest athletes against the greatest athletes in a fair playing field. And I think anything that interferes with that has a larger emotional effect than other cheating that may make even more difference in winning. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, five, five or so years ago, that John Capolella, who was the manager of the Atlanta Braves, was put on the permanently ineligible list. I mean, he was effectively banned for life for the, what, what he was doing when they were signing players from Latin America unfairly. And yet that, that, that never caught, I mean, obviously he was banned, he was banned. So sure. it, it mattered within baseball, but clearly that never got the, 
the interest of the public the same way that steroids or, or, or sticky stuff on the ball did. So I think there's a certain sense that the on-field stuff is it, it gets a, gets a larger perspective or look than than some of the the other things. Um, and, and the other comment that I would make is that fooling the umpire is generally viewed differently than than things that aren't fooling the umpire. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you hold up the ball and say you you, you know you trapped a ball and you held it up like you caught it. Or, I mean, th that stuff is treated differently because once you have an umpire, people feel like, well, it's his job to catch me. And if he doesn't, well, then that's okay. Even something like pitch framing is celebrated, but it's, it's, it's not really, a, it's not cheating, but it's, you know, it's, it's attempting to gain an edge for something that's not really a, a strike, essentially. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's the same as to me, it's holding up a trap ball um, or, you know, the, the old time first baseman talk about, you know, Ed Cranepool talks about this, pulling his foot off the bag um, early at first base to get the bang, bang play at first base. Now you can't really get away with that anymore with the instant replay on the, but you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think pitch framing is, is in that same, that same realm. So where, as we think about, you know, the, the changes with the pitchers and that was, that's been the, the latest kind of big, controversy with the, with the sticky stuff on the baseballs and there's that the kind of the designer stuff that people were using is that another case where someone takes it too far or the innovators you know gain more of an edge than everybody else is is gaining and then and then people are get, start getting upset or how, how do these things come to pass where enough is enough uh, to certain to a certain degree do you think well i i think it's you know one of the analogy we use is like speedy if you know if the speed limit's 60 and everybody's going 67, you know, the world kind of works and people aren't getting pulled over. But then if you have people start going 85, all of a sudden things kind of get out of control. And I think that's a little bit what we saw with the sticky stuff. I mean, you know, maybe pitchers are using a little extra rosin or doing stuff to get a better grip on the ball, but all of a sudden the spider tack came out, which right. was invented to for the world's strongest man competition so that these guys could carry these giant Atlas stones and get a better grip. And the guys who invented them were joking. They started to see these orders coming in from major league clubhouses. And they're like, well, why the heck are these guys ordering it? And, and so all of a sudden you have a, a, you know, a change in magnitude of the kind of grip and the kind of pitches that, that, that can be thrown. And all of a sudden you have something that was sort of innocuous and people just sort of lived with to something that all right, all of a sudden now we got to deal with this because you, can't hit pitches that do some of these things that the way these guys spin them. We saw Fernando Tatis Jr. recently suspended 80 games. Um, it was part of the performance enhancing drugs. Um, you know, that was obviously the, I feel like that's three or four scandals ago now in terms of just the bigger <laughs> picture of scandals in baseball, but still obviously front brain if someone of that caliber is, is caught doing it. A couple of things along those lines, you know, First, I feel like those sorts of things are getting harder to detect. But at the same time, I feel like there's also, I feel like there's a generational difference between how people think about using steroids and, and you know, performance enhancing drugs. And I feel like some people just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, ah, everybody was doing it or what's, what's wrong with trying to gain an edge. And I feel like it's, it's, it, it's a little bit generational to me, but I, 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 I'd like to hear your take on, on how that how that era has played out and kind of the, maybe even some of the shift in how we look at that era. Yeah. You know, I mean, my take, our take is a little bit, there, there, there's, there's clearly a difference between restorative drugs and enhancing drugs. Yeah. I mean, the first scandal in baseball over drugs was in 1951 because Hal Neuhauser was the 1945 MVP 
was getting Novocaine shots in his shoulder and people didn't know how to take that. And there was headlines like Tigers doped their way to World Series. And eventually we sort of got to this equilibrium, I think, but there's a large gray area where restorative drugs are okay, enhancements aren't. So, you know, Tommy John surgery, LASIK surgery, you know, cortisone shots are generally viewed as okay. And I, I still think people are um, unhappy. I mean, I, th I still think even with the generational thing, there's still this idea that steroids offer, you know, they, they sort of take the purity a little bit out of this athletic competition that we're all looking for. But the issue to sundry was we have no idea really who was doing it. Yeah. Testing didn't come around till 2004. And even then, you know, how good was that early testing? And so part of it is, you know, we just need to move on. And how do we move on? And I think that's really part of where the where the generational um, shift comes. Talking with Dan Levitt, uh, co-author of Intentional Bach, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. A few more thoughts for you, Dan, appreciating this conversation. In the book, you guys discuss, I believe, five of baseball's most questionable forms of quote-unquote innovation over the years. What, what stands out to you on that realm? Well, you know, again, I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, you invent the farm system and sure. then people you know, take it too far. Uh, you, you invent binoculars, people take it too far. Um, you know, part of the, what, one of the things we didn't talk about here earlier is part of what would allow this spider tech pitching to do so much was that we had now have these high speed cameras so that you can actually watch what a pitcher's wrist does. So, you know, he can put on the sticky stuff, you know, he can turn his wrist a quarter of an inch this way or whatever. And, and so once there's technology, whatever it is, whether it's binoculars or high-speed video, folks will figure out a way to, 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 to take advantage of it. And again, I mean, occasionally that goes over the line. There's nothing wrong with using high-speed video to fix your pitches. There is when you use it to manage it along with sticky substances. Is there anything kind of, you know, maybe that even doesn't get full attention in the book because it's it's so new? Or can you, as, as you kind of research this, do you see anything kind of on the horizon or anything that you see as like a, a looming potential issue as, as, as these kind of innovators and, and, you know, kind of keep pushing different areas of the game? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is, for example, medical science, you know, as, as, as artificial knees or shoulders get a whole lot better, is there going to be some point where we say, you know, for those of us old enough to remember the $6 million man back from the seventies, is there some point where we're going to say, you know, you're, you're putting in a better shoulder than this guy was, was born with. Um, another thing is, is assuming we get electronic balls and strikes, there are going to be ways to interfere with that. If you move your elbow in a certain way, might the machine pick that up as the ball coming through? So, I mean, I, I think there's various things like that. Then there's sort of database issues, right? I mean, what, 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 you know, what medical issue information does the player own and what medical information does the team own? And is there some way to sort of get advantages when you're trading players by, you know, hiding data or not hiding data? So I, I think there's, you know, all sorts of things coming down the road that we just, you know, as technology gets much more part of all of our lives, there's probably going to be lots of ways to tweak it. Now, obviously, this isn't just baseball. We've had scandals in a lot of other sports, cheating wise. And you think of football with deflate gate and any, any number of other things. Basketball's had its share, you know, hockey trying to curving the stick in a certain way. There's just every every game has a certain level of that. But it does feel to me like baseball has maybe more of it or a more celebrated, maybe the wrong word, but, 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 a, but a, a richer history of it that, that's been, you know, 
fully, uh, you know, fully explored and especially in this, in, in your book and just throughout history, do you get that sense that this is not necessarily unique to baseball, but, um, you know, highlighted in baseball more than other sports? I do. And I think there's two things going on there. One is I think baseball is just more susceptible because it, it, the rule book is so much bigger. I mean, you, you, there's just a lot more going on. I mean, there's only so much you can do in a basketball game. Um, but I mean, th- there's, just, there's many, many, many rules in baseball. And so there's a lot more, more things to tweak. Uh, I mean, you know, the, so yeah, there's a lot, there's just a lot more uh, going on there. The other thing is that, that the rule book, a lot of ways has evolved because people have tried to get around the rules and then, you know, the rules have been changed to, to say, you can't do that. Right. People have tried to figure out how to sign players. Other people couldn't figure out how to sign. And then the rules say, okay, you got to sign those people have figured out ways to, you know, put stuff on the ball back in the teens. Um, and then all of a sudden, 1920, there's a rule saying you can't do that. So to a certain degree, baseball has a much more obvious and longer history of, of sort of making rules to cover loopholes. And so I just think it, that, that puts it much more in the public eye. Yeah, I think maybe some of the just the fact that there's so much dead time too. You, you get you've got opportunities to influence something. Whereas you know basketball and hockey, good good luck trying to get somebody information along as they're trying to run up the court or skate down the ice. So you can't really you can't really do that as much. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it did, just the, the the timing of the game um, allows all, all the pauses just allow a whole lot more ways to try and do something uh, against the rules. Yes, it does. Well, it's been uh, it's been a great conversation with you, Dan. Remind me, where can we buy Intentional Bach Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating? Well, it's generally, I mean, the easiest place is online. A number of the bookstores have it, but, uh, you know, your your uh, favorite independent bookstore has it. And so will Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com has it. So it should be available anywhere you buy books online. Make sure you buy it. Don't cheat and uh, get it illegally, <laughs> right? Well done. All right, Dan, appreciate it. Take care, all right? My pleasure. Thank you. Really enjoyed that conversation with Dan Levitt, especially the stuff about what's coming down the road. I hadn't even thought about, you know, injuries and, you know, replacement parts for shoulders and things like that. And can that make you even better than you were before? I want, you know, elective surgeries, things like that could be could be down the road. I, that piece of it is fascinating to me, a whole new ethical dilemma for a sport that's had more than its share of controversies, and not just recently. This is a historical thing for the sport, and that is explored in great depth in this book. Let's finish with the cooler. Sounds like the Gophers men's basketball team has a shot at a very, very good recruit. Now, Marcus Fuller writing about that in today's Star Tribune and on StarTribune.com. Dennis Evans, seven-footer out of California, one of the top recruits in the country, um, he's going to visit the Gophers, according to his AAU coach. His AAU coach says he might end up going to Minnesota, to be completely honest. Ben Johnson and assistant Marcus Jenkins have done a tremendous job recruiting Dennis. Um, Evans blocked 16 shots in a game last year. Uh, he's a top, you know, top 30 recruit, according to both Rivals.com and 247 Sports. Um, 13th, according to Rivals. So that'd be a huge get. We'll have to see. You know, this is just interest right now. This is just, you know, going to take a visit. But it sounds like it's more, you know, it's not just like, hey, he's in the mix. It sounds like they're one of the, the true contenders for him. I don't think I don't think Marcus would write it this way if it wasn't, you know, something that had a, at least a reasonable possibility of happening. So 
monitor that as it goes on. That's a pretty that would be a pretty big get for Ben Johnson, be you know guy from California who has uh, you know just wouldn't imagine that would be someone they were you know, really going after, but uh, or have a, have a real chance to get. Um, but we'll see. It could it, that would be a big get, and uh, we'll, we'll monitor that as it goes along. That will do it for me today. Like I said, I'll be out at the fair today talking to Lindsey Whalen around 3 p.m. on the Star Tribune stage. Got a lot of good stuff coming up the rest of the week as well. Should be some gopher football talk on tomorrow's show as we get ready for that opener on Thursday. And some gopher volleyball talk later in the week as well with Jeff Day from the Star Tribune. That'll do it. Thanks for listening. Back at it again on Thursday.